You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. We are very pleased to welcome everyone to today's panel discussion on holding Russia accountable for the atrocities they are committing in Ukraine. My name is Lise Grande, and I'm the head of the United States Institute of Peace. USIP was established by the U.S. Congress in 1984 as a nonpartisan public institution dedicated to preventing, mitigating, and helping to resolve violent conflict abroad. We are honored today to welcome the Ambassador of Ukraine to the United States, Ambassador Oksana Makarova. We are honored to be joined by Curtis Reed, the Senior Director of Multilateral Affairs at the National Security Council, by Professor Jane Stromseth, the Francis Cubbell Brown Professor of International Law at Georgetown University, and by Ambassador Bill Taylor, the former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine and USIP's Vice President for Russia and Europe. For many of us, what's happened this past month in Ukraine is unimaginable. A founding member of the United Nations and a permanent member of the UN Security Council has invaded a sovereign country with the intention to take over its territory. Russia's unprovoked, unjustified invasion to take over the territory of Ukraine threatens the sanctity of Ukraine, has resulted in the death and displacement of Ukrainian citizens, is destroying the country's infrastructure, and is a violation of nearly every aspect of the global system of peace and stability that Russia itself helped to establish 75 years ago. Russia needs to be held accountable for launching a war of aggression against a sovereign state and for the crimes it is committing during the conflict itself. We have to do this because accountability for war crimes is one of the most important principles of global governance and civilized nations. Ukraine is leading the effort to hold Russia accountable filing claims at the International Court of Justice and the European Court of Human Rights. Already, the International Court of Justice has issued a preliminary ruling dismissing Russia's claim of genocide as a pretext for the invasion and calling upon Russia to halt all military operations in Ukraine's territory. More steps are being taken by other components of the international justice system. The prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has taken the initiative to open an investigation into alleged crimes, and the UN Human Rights Council has established a commission of inquiry. These are important steps, and they are very positive. What we hope to do today is discuss the additional steps that can be taken by the US, by all of us, to hold Russia accountable. We invite everyone to join the dialogue via the USIP chat box on the event page, for those of you who are joining us in person or virtually around the world, please use the hashtag at UkraineUSIP. It is my distinct honor to welcome to the podium the Ambassador of Ukraine to the United States. Ambassador Makarov was appointed to her current position in 2021. Prior to this, she served with distinction as, the Ukraine, as Ukraine's Minister of Finance, facilitating the country's economic revival, introducing gender-oriented budgeting, and coordinating partnerships with the International Monetary Fund. In the past weeks, the ambassador 
has worked tirelessly on behalf of the Ukrainian people. Madam Ambassador. Thank you very much, President Lisa Grande, dear Ambassador Taylor, dear Dr. Stromthess and Mr. Reed. I would like to thank the U.S. Institute of Peace for doing this very, very important initiative. And it's not just one initiative. It's a joint work that we are starting, not today, but today is the highlight when we get together to discuss very important issue on which all of us should be working very hard and closely for the next days, weeks, months, years, whatever it will take in order to bring justice, which is very important. Peace is something that we need urgently, but justice is something that we will need always, and we have to keep focus on it. This very day, the 22nd of March, is uh, a sad day. We just looked with my team that in 1933, this is the day in, in which the first concentration camp has been created by Nazi regime in Dachau, near Munich. Exactly on this day. It was probably not the first, but the first very visible sign of the atrocities in Europe that Nazi Germans created. And unfortunately today the history repeats itself. And today again, in the center of Europe, now in Ukraine, we are talking about atrocities, about genocide, about war crimes and crimes against humanity. On 24th of February, after eight years of war, because we always want everyone to keep focus, that Russia attacked us in 2014. That's when they have illegally annexed Crimea. That's when they have illegally attacked part of Donetsk and Lugansk oblasts. But on 24th of February, they have attacked us again with a full-fledged war. They airbombed with cruise missiles, bombs, and everything else, our kindergarten, schools, residential areas. The homes and schools are destroyed, peaceful neighborhoods are turned into rubbles. Innocent civilians die. These actions have no military objectives. This is something that we hear not only from Ukraine, not only from the U.S. government or other governments. We are yet to find any expert who would explain what is the strategy by bombing and killing children and women. This genocide is what it is. It's the genocide against Ukrainian people. And I am convinced that in this century, like 80 years ago, everyone who's responsible for it should be brought to justice. We are defending our native land. The Ukrainians are on defense here. The situation is very black and white. It was Russia that crossed the border. It was Russia that attacked Ukraine. Even though we had all the uh, legal grounds to return Crimea and parts of Donetsk and Lugansk territories back, never in the past eight years Ukraine planned or tried any military offensives. We only focused on diplomatic solutions. So it's only Russia that is an aggressor here. But now when we are facing this, and for the past uh, many days are fighting in this fight against the, what before was called the second uh, uh, largest or whatever army uh, of the planet, which I think we all should question seriously now, uh, 
I, I can only recall the uh, President Roosevelt's phrase that the only thing that we have to fear is the fear itself. And this is something that we want all the world also to embrace and feel. So we call on everyone to hold not only Mr. Putin and his accomplices, but everyone, each person that is responsible for this aggression. And today we have to launch all possible legal instruments, as uh, Madam President already mentioned. So it includes the International Court of Justice, it includes the International Criminal Court, it includes the European Court of Human Rights. We also are exploring the possibility to create a special tribunal because we believe that the atrocities of this massive proportion deserve to be addressed in, in the most uh, public and most uh, uh, legal ways. So what have we achieved so far? So far, uh, as you know, that uh, Russian crimes already have been addressed by the International Court of Justice in The Hague. On March 16th, the hearing of the ICJ ruled in favor of provisional order instructing Russia to halt the invasion in Ukraine. Now, not surprisingly, despite the fact that order has been binding on Russia under the UN Charter, the Kremlin openly and blatantly decided to disregard it. And this, I think, is a very important moment for all of us, not only to reflect or discuss, but act upon. Because if Russia wants to sit on two chairs at once, we should say no. On the one hand, it does not commit to the obligatory ruling of the international court. On the other, it wants to continue enjoying all the privileges of international law. We don't think that all civilized world and all countries who truly believe in UN and UN Charter should, should, should allow that to happen. So if they refuse us, if they continue to refuse to comply with this law, they should also relinquish all the rights and immunities granted per UN Charter, and first and foremost, its veto right under the UN Security Council. That is why Ukraine and our uh, representative, our permanent representative to UN, has been very vocal about it uh, recently, that we encourage the UN Security Council to exercise its duties envisaged in the Article 94.2 under the UN Charter and decide upon measures to be taken in case they fail to comply uh, with the obligations that they have. We also encourage to join everyone to join the group of Friends of Account Accountability following the aggression against Ukraine, co-founded by Albania, Colombia, Denmark, and Marshall Islands, and Netherlands and Ukraine. The group will act as a forum among UN members for the discussion and promotion of accountability measures in Ukraine following the Russian military aggression. You also know that after the referral of the 39 states of the situation in Ukraine to the International Criminal Court in The Hague, on March 16, the ICC prosecutor has opened an investigation into the current events in Ukraine. And these prosecutors already started their work. They already started collecting evidences on the ground. And Ukrainian authorities are not only ready, but already are cooperating actively with them, and they are providing maximum assistance for this team. So uh, the Prosecutor General of Ukraine and all the relevant uh, law enforcement authorities which are involved in this uh, already are cooperating, getting the, all, the, all the evidences transferred. Uh, and also, you know, we, we all saw that uh, Karim Khan, in his part, already said that he has seen many pictures and video and everything from, for example, Mariupol. 
and other cities, the suffering of people, and deliberate actions by Russians to target civilians, deliberate actions to do what is called by everyone a crime of war. Now, according to the data which you see now on the screen, and its data is already confirmed by Ukrainian law enforcement, uh, a great number of these victims, despite the fact that we are in active war, has been already documented by Ukrainian uh, law enforcement authorities. So it's, it's everything. It's killing civilians. It's kidnapping. It's uh, wartime sexual violence. It's unnecessary destruction of civilian property, actually targeting civilian property on purpose. It's manipulation of the concept of genocide, because while they are doing the war crimes and genocide in Ukraine, we still, until now, hear the public uh, officials from Russia essentially blaming us for some kind of uh, uh, genocide we have planned against God knows whom. We already lost 115 children, and this is the information as of yesterday. I uh, honestly did not find strength to look at the statistics before walking into this room, because every day we are losing more and more. Um, they have made children a deliberate target. You know, it's, it's, again, it's not a war. It's not how armed forces fight with armed forces. They specifically target the civilians, and they specifically want to terrorize us. Because again, let's all return back to the day the war started or the months before that. Everyone, including everyone in Russia, thought it's going to be a peaceful walk for them. They will come and they will be greeted by some aliens by flowers. They will take over Ukraine in days. Kiev would fall in hours. We've heard it all. But the fact is that this is the fight that Ukraine now is fighting for almost a month, but this is the fight, this is a war that we are fighting for eight years, and this is the struggle for our independence and sovereignty and democracy, which we are fighting for the past 400 years. This is not something new to us. This is something we have been very vocal throughout centuries, trying to get across a very simple point, that Ukrainians are not Russians, that we are separate country, separate people, who want to live peacefully, as we were before, peaceful bread growers on our own land. And right now, after 30 years of regained independence, we are ready to defend this land. We will not give up, we will not surrender, because this is the only home we have. So we will be fighting, and while we are fighting, we are asking all the support that we can get in helping us, of course, to fight effectively and bring peace bring peace through victory, bring peace, bring peace through strength, but also find justice, something that we are gathering today to discuss. Because we need all the support from all international organizations, all the open criminal cases. We are calling on all countries to actually open their individual independent investigations. Already six countries opened these cases now. It's Estonia, Lithuania, Germany, Poland, Slovakia, and Sweden. And Ukraine's prosecutor general works closely with them. We are doing our work in Ukraine. We are doing our work with international organizations and international courts. But we would assist any country that sees it for what it is and that wants to prosecute them separately. This is a global issue. This is not only an issue for Ukraine. It's an issue for humanity, and it's an issue of international rule of law. The question that we all have to answer is not how to 
save Ukraine or how to stop the war in Ukraine only. The question is how do we reconstruct the world order and international rule of law as we knew it after the World War II? How do we stop an authoritarian nuclear power that decided to attack a foreign country, a neighboring sovereign country, and if it's okay to attack Ukraine, who can feel safe? Can anyone feel safe if the only reason we are attacked is our civilizational choice to be peaceful and democratic? So I'm looking forward to this discussion. I think it's, 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 it's a great panel of uh, experts who know a lot in it. And uh, I'm very glad that Ambassador Taylor will be moderating this discussion. When Ambassador Taylor, a couple of years ago, in a peaceful time, was a speaker at the Diplomatic Academy in Ukraine, I was still a Minister of Finance then, and I didn't even thought that uh, I would not be a financier and I would turn into a diplomat myself. But I remember you presented a brilliant uh, talk, which was titled The Jungle Grows Back. And the building, the, 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 this, this talk has been built on the Robert Kagan's book, and you warned everyone in your talk, and it was a couple of years ago, about Russia's growing revanchism, about Russia actually returning to this, through this revisionist and uh, politics into neo-imperial uh, ideas and, and desires, which again, in Ukraine, we knew it, we felt it, since 1991 when we regained independence. But it was brilliant to hear it, Ambassador, from you. And I think it's our duty now, it's our duty now to stop this war while it's in Ukraine, to protect Ukraine as the peaceful country that is fighting for its home, but also to protect the foundations of the Western or civilized civilization, whatever we want to call it, and to roll the jungle back to say that, no, we can be peaceful, we can be democratic, and we still can protect ourselves against a brutal enemy. Thank you very much, and I look forward to this discussion. Ambassador, thank you so much for your comments the privilege of you being with us today. I'm very pleased to introduce the members of today's panel, uh, starting first with Professor Jane Stromseth. Um, Jane is the Francis Cabal Brown Professor of International Law at Georgetown University. She has served as the Deputy Ambassador-at-Large in the Office of Global Criminal Justice at the U.S. State Department and as the Senior Advisor on the Rule of Law and International Humanitarian Policy at the Department of Defense where she worked on the establishment of an atrocity prevention board. Jane has also served as the director for multilateral and humanitarian affairs at the National Security Council and as attorney advisor in the office of the legal advisor at the Department of State. We're honored to present Curtis Reed. Curtis is the director of multilateral affairs at the National Security Council. Curtis has served as the senior advisor to the National Security Advisor, Susan Rice, and was the Director for Multilateral Affairs at the National Security Council, where he coordinated U.S. government engagement with the U.N. Curtis has also served as the Political Counsel at the U.S. Mission to the U.N., where he was primarily responsible for the Security Council's work related to the Middle East. We're very pleased to present Ambassador Bill Taylor. 
Bill is the vice president of the US's, USIP's newest center, the Center for Russia and Europe. In 2019, he served as the Chargé d'Affaires at the US Embassy, Kiev, and was the US ambassador to Ukraine from 2006 to 2009. During the Arab Spring, Bill oversaw US assistance and support to Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, and Syria. A warm welcome to all of you. Jane, if you allow, we're going to start with the first question to you. And what we're hoping you will do is to walk through with all of us the currently existing justice mechanisms, which are available to address or redress the types of war crimes which the ambassador talked about in her comments to us. And that would include the unprovoked aggression where Russia invades a sovereign country, but also the crimes committed during the conflict itself. And as you and I were discussing before we came in this morning, we'd be very interested in your views on which of these mechanisms you actually think is the most effective. Great, thank you. Uh, thank you, Lisa, and to everyone at USIP for bringing us together on these important issues. I'm honored to be here. Um, as the ambassador discussed so powerfully, the brave people of Ukraine are enduring horrific atrocity crimes in the aftermath of an un uh, unlawful, unprovoked aggression launched by Vladimir Putin, and those accountable must be, those responsible must be held accountable. In fact, failure to stand up to those uh, who order and commit such crimes only emboldens their sense of impunity. And Putin's past aggressive acts and atrocities in Ukraine and elsewhere have only emboldened him, and that impunity has to stop. And to answer Lisa's excellent question, um, I think there are uh, international and national mechanisms available right now with jurisdiction over those who bear individual criminal responsibility. And I would highlight in particular the International Criminal Court and national proceedings in Ukraine and in other countries with jurisdiction, uh, as the ambassador herself um, noted. So first, the International Criminal Court based in The Hague, has jurisdiction to investigate and prosecute individuals responsible for crimes against humanity, war crimes, and genocide committed on the territory of Ukraine. Um, Ukraine declared its acceptance of the court's jurisdiction eight years ago, and again in 2015, following Russia's military intervention in Crimea and the Donbass, essentially giving the court jurisdiction from 2013 on to the present day. And as the, as the ambassador mentioned, the ICC prosecutor has uh, started an investigation, sent a team of investigators to Ukraine, has himself personally been to Ukraine, spoken with Ukrainian officials, including President Zelensky. Um, and he's also emphasized repeatedly that the intentional targeting of civilians and of civilian objects, such as hospitals, and indiscriminate attacks are war crimes prosecutable by the court that there's no statute of limitations for these crimes, sending a clear message to all those who commit those abuses that they may one day face justice. Um, and I think the ICC is in a very strong position to make a difference here 
both because of um, the jurisdiction that it possesses, the fact that the prosecutor has shown such determination to act um, expeditiously and effectively, and because of the cooperation that uh, Ukraine has is, is indicated it will provide. In fact, President Zelensky said he wanted to provide maximum assistance to the ICC investigation team. And the prosecutor, in turn, said he wants to work very closely with um, the national authorities to gather evidence and to ensure that those responsible for international crimes are held accountable in a court of law. Another factor that makes, I think, the ICC an important um, venue for justice is that heads of state and other officials do not enjoy immunity under the court statute. So the potential to reach higher level officials is something that the ICC can potentially do. Of course, the ICC's ability to make a difference will depend on support, uh, not only from Ukraine, but from other countries. Support, financial support, support with personnel, support in gathering uh, evidence, uh, and in many other ways. And I think it's vital that the U.S. be among the countries that provide such support. I think the U.S. could be especially helpful um, in providing evidence linking war crimes to specific responsible individuals because that that linkage is often very you know challenging and it's vitally important to actually holding particular people uh, accountable there is however one gap in the ICC's jurisdiction in this case and that is over the crime of aggression which is particularly unfortunate given the unprovoked um, uh, unlawful aggression of Russia against Ukraine. And that is because the ICC only has jurisdiction over the crime of aggression if the states that are involved are both parties to the court. And currently, neither Ukraine nor Russia are parties to the court. So that is a gap in the court's ability to address one of the most significant crimes um, at issue. But there are ways to address this. And they include supporting national prosecutions of um, the crime of aggression. Ukraine has that crime in its domestic criminal code. Um, and also, as the ambassador mentioned, potentially creating a hybrid court uh, by combining um, national and international um, actors with Ukraine's consent, potentially through an agreement with the United Nations and potentially modeled on the special court for Sierra Leone. So in other words, supporting Ukrainian prosecutions, but reinforcing that with the assistance and the involvement of international actors. And if you created an internationalized court, then you'd be able to address problems, potential problems of immunity under customary international law for high level officials. So that is some of the ways in which uh, the ICC can make a difference and potentially be supplemented. Uh, secondly, and, and here I just want to underscore the very important point that the ambassador made about the importance of national proceedings. Um, Ukraine um, has itself incorporated war crimes and crime of, crime of aggression into its criminal code. It created a special war crimes unit that can investigate these crimes. Uh, it's shown extraordinary determination in investigating and gathering evidence and has welcomed support by the U.S. and the EU and others in, in these important domestic efforts. And the ICC will only be able to prosecute a small number of cases given its global mandate to address atrocities in so many parts of the world. And so national prosecutions in Ukraine will be essential. Um, and indeed, um, there may well already be some 
it, depending on where the evidence uh, leads, um, some Russian forces currently held in Ukraine that might potentially be subject to prosecution mm -hmm. by national courts. In addition, as the ambassador mentioned, there are other national courts in Europe that have jurisdiction over atrocity crimes, and they are beginning to investigate. And what's so important about this is this can help build a web of accountability, a broader sort of network and web of accountability that sends a message to those who commit these horrific crimes that they can run, but they cannot hide, and they will enjoy no safe haven. And so I think building that web of accountability through national prosecutions that supplement the work of the ICC. I think those are the most um, vital and important ways to proceed. I, I will mention just briefly also a third mechanism, which is the UN Human Rights Council's creation of a commission of inquiry to investigate human rights abuses and um, violations of international humanitarian law. Standing up this mechanism urgently, I think, is vital because there are so many civil society organizations that have been gathering and documenting um, evidence of crimes, and this commission of inquiry can help be a, a, a clearinghouse, a storinghouse for these, um, for these efforts, and I think it can also help assemble advanced technological tools to sort through the massive amount of information, including videos and uh, social media and so forth, to identify relevant in information relevant evidence and weed out misinformation and authenticate information. So I think it can be a reinforcing mechanism for the national and the international uh, investigations and prosecutions that are so essential to accountability. Professor, thank you for a very comprehensive and thorough walking through of the various mechanisms. And, and Curtis, with your permission, it leads to a question uh, we look forward to your views on, which is the role that the United States is playing through the multilateral institutions to hold Russia accountable. Thank you, Lise. And uh, first, let me start out by thanking the U.S. Institute of Peace by, for hosting us today. And uh, thank you to Ambassador uh, Markarova for your very powerful words at the outset. And thank you, Professor Stromseth, for laying out for us all the various options that we have to look at uh, in promoting accountability for Russia's actions in Ukraine. Just to, you know, to, to step back and think about the impact on the multilateral system, I think that we can all agree that Russia's war against Ukraine is presenting the greatest challenge to the UN Charter and to our rules-based international system that we have seen in over a generation. And we as the United States believe that it is, uh, that we must work in concert with our partners and allies, one, in support of the people of Ukraine, uh, but also and more broadly in defense of the UN Charter in defense of democracy and in defense of the ideals that serve as the foundation for our post-World War II international order. Russia's aggression against Ukraine highlights in particular the centrality of the principle of respecting national sovereignty and territorial integrity and the norm that no country can dictate another country's borders, government, or security alliances by force. I'd like to share some comments on what we've been doing in the multilateral uh, space and across the UN system and then describe a bit how we're linking this to our accountability efforts as they relate to Ukraine. Obviously, we recognize there's much more to be done. I think we've already heard some interesting new ideas here today and look forward to hearing thoughts from those that are participating uh, in the audience as well. Um, we are really using every multilateral tool at our disposal to isolate Russia for its war choice against Ukraine and to address the challenges that the people of Ukraine are facing. And as someone that worked at our mission to the UN for five years, I can say we have really kind of unearthed every, every option, every mechanism that we can think of uh, to support uh, the government and the people of Ukraine. 
Working with our colleagues uh, on the UN Security Council, uh, we are shining a spotlight on Russia's actions. Uh, we have held over half a dozen Security Council meetings uh, since the war in Ukraine started, and we have really used this to shine, uh, a, um, to, to bring clear uh, attention to Russia's unilateral aggression against Ukraine. I think that this has been particularly important in terms of dispelling Russian, dis Russian disinformation. Uh, Russia's narrative thrives off of disinformation, and using the Security Council sessions, I think, has allowed us to uh, share declassified information, other evidence that we have, that directly disputes Russia's accusations. Um, and I think by sharing these early, we've been able to get ahead of Russia's narrative and to show how isolated they are uh, in, in the myths that they are trying to uh, spread. I think this has been particularly important recently uh, in terms of the concerns that we've shared uh, about Russia's potential use of chemical and biological weapons and trying to be very clear about the information that we have there. Um, in response to the invasion, uh, directly after, we forced Russia to stand alone and to veto a UN Security Council resolution denouncing its aggression against Ukraine. Uh, the resolution that the United States co-drafted with Albania uh, prompted the majority of the Security Council to condemn Russia publicly. And I think there were some really potent statements, statements including uh, by one in particular by Kenya, where the Kenyan ambassador poignantly explained that even though Kenya did not draw its own borders, the kind of fundamentals of the international system make it essential that all countries respect borders and do not seek to re redraw them uh, through force. Um, following Russia's veto in the Security Council, we successfully called for an extraordinary emergency special session of the General Assembly using the Uniting for Peace mechanism, which is something that uh, the Security Council has not done in over 40 years. Working in concert with, concert with our allies, we garnered over 141 votes uh, for the General Assembly resolution condemning Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. Um, turning maybe to some of the specialized agencies, uh, in Vienna earlier this month, the United States supported the strong and uh, unequivocal resolution tabled by Canada and Poland uh, at an extraordinary meeting of the IAE's Board of Governors to condemn in the strongest terms Russia's actions in Ukraine, including its uh, forceful seizure uh, of nuclear facilities, and to express grave concern with the threat that those actions pose to nuclear safety and security. We're also using our interventions uh, as the United States across the General Assembly, the Security Council, and other UN fora to highlight the risk of sexual and gender-based violence, especially for women and children who are fleeing Ukraine. Um, turning now to some of the atrocities that were mentioned, last week you heard uh, what President Biden said clearly uh, on war crimes. Secretary of State Blinken has also said he believes that war crimes are being committed. Every single day we see more barbaric images and videos of what Russia is doing in Ukraine, and we will hold Russia accountable. Our experts across the government are in the process of gathering, analyzing, and cataloging evidence of potential war crimes being committed in Ukraine. And our goal is to turn this evidence uh, that we gather over to international mechanisms that have launched investigations uh, into war crimes and other atrocities in Ukraine. Um, as Professor Stromseth mentioned, uh, in Geneva, the United States joined countries from all over the world in voting overwhelmingly to establish a commission of inquiry to document Russia's human rights abuses against the Ukrainian people. And that is evidence that can be used in future prosecutions, including for war crimes, and will hopefully lead to accountability for some of the horrendous acts that we're seeing in Ukraine. We're also pushing for accountability at the OSCE, uh, where 45 uh, members of the OSCE have activated the OSCE's uh, Moscow mechanism, and that is yet another avenue where we can catalog uh, some of the evidence that is being collected. 
Um, we're also directly supporting the uh, Ukrainian authorities, including the Office of the Prosecutor General. Uh, and um, in particular, we're working with the War Crimes Unit there uh, to document potential atrocity crimes for prosecution domestically in Ukraine. And we're also supporting a range of actors on the ground, uh, non-governmental actors, uh, activists, who are collecting some of this information themselves. Uh, additionally, we welcome Prosecutor uh, Kareem Khan's announcement to open an investigation at the International Criminal Court. And we are particularly uh, appreciate his focus on preserving evidence of possible, of possible atrocity crimes. I think across the board, you know, there are a number of mechanisms that have been set up. There are a number of non-governmental actors that are uh, seeking to collect uh, and preserve evidence for future prosecutions. And I think that we really view coordination and the interoperability of these various, various mechanisms as essential. And as the ambassador mentioned, we have the Group of Friends uh, for Accountability in Ukraine, which is something the U.S. was proud to join last week. I think that could serve as a useful mechanism for some of our uh, coordination efforts. So I think that the, the various um, initiatives that I've shared can uh, kind of highlight how essential the multilateral system is to the pursuit of accountability in Ukraine. And we are going to continue to work closely with our Ukrainian partners, uh, with our other partners and allies uh, around the world to leverage every element of the UN system that we can uh, to ensure that uh, justice is done to those who've committed uh, crimes in, in Ukraine. Curtis, thank you. It's very striking, Professor, listening to you, listening to you, Curtis, describe the way in which the spider's web of mm -hmm. accountability is being woven and just how strong and dense that web actually is. Bill, that leads us to a discussion you and I and others have been having earlier about the sensitivity and the relationship between a negotiated into the war and yet holding the perpetrators of that invasion accountable. This is not an easy question to address. You know Ukraine very well, and we'd be very interested in your view on that. Please, thank you. <clears throat> Ambassador, it's great to be back with you again, um, and you're great great team. Thanks. Katja Smagli does, as I say, wonderful work. Um, she was there when we were talking about, uh, about the jungle uh, that, that you mentioned in, in your remarks, and, uh, and so it's, it's, an honor. it's an honor to be here. Um, let me just emphasize a couple of things, Ambassador, that you said. <clears throat> and it gets to your question, please. Um, one is, you said, this is, this is black and white. Many of us I fought in a war that was morally ambiguous. This is not morally ambiguous. This is exactly what you said. This is black and white. This, this, is, this is crime. <clears throat> this is aggression. This is unprovoked. This is innocence on the other side. This is black and white. So you're, you're exactly right. And, and um, you mentioned that uh, the world had thought that... Uh, the second best army in the world would be in Kiev in, in days, hours, you said. It turns out <clears throat> that this army is the second best army in Ukraine. Uh, <laughs> it, it, because the Ukrainian military has shown to be heroes, shown to be heroes, um, and Ukrainians have been seen to be heroes. And your president has been seen to be a hero. So this is an inspiration to institutions like this. Uh, it's, an inst it's an inspiration to the world. And so it's a congratulations uh, to you, you and, your, and your country. 
<coughs> accountability, um, foundational to, to the United States, to all of our work that we've talked about here. I was just sitting here um, as you were speaking, and I got a message from my son, who is a prosecutor. And he has been arguing um, in court to con that, that a man was guilty of killing two other men. And he had to prove it in this court. A lot of time and effort went into that trial to prove one man guilty of killing two men. And to think what is going on in your country that is one man guilty of killing tens of thousands, tens of thousands. Um, that account, that court where my son was, has, has, has established accountability, we need to establish, establish accountability here as well. And as you've pointed out, Professor, in order for that accountability to be accomplished, Ukraine has to win. Ukraine has to win in order to do all the things that we've been talking about here, in order to bring this man and the others. You listed a lot of people who are guilty of these crimes on your, on your slide. And in order to bring them to account, Ukraine has to win. Um, and so we will do this. At least your question about negotiations is, a, is an important one. And only the Ukrainians and only the Ukrainian leadership can decide about these negotiations. Certainly not for us to to say anything really about what should happen. And this, these are hard questions that, Ambassador, you know better than anyone about, about the terms of negotiations. We will, we will support you. We, the Americans, probably the U.S. government, will support you on, on that negotiation, on, on, on how that happens. And we need to be careful, exactly as Lee said, about how we talk about and implement uh, this, uh, these war crimes discussions. Um, we want to be supportive um, of, of your negotiations. We want to support, be supportive of ceasefire, withdrawal of Russian forces. That has to happen, and then this work has to happen. Bill, thank you very much. Um, we'd be delighted to take questions from anyone who is with us in the auditorium. Are there colleagues who would like to pose a question to a member of the panel? We have Jonathan. President Biden goes to Poland. What is Ukraine asking or hoping for, asking for um, out of the out of the NATO summit? Uh, there's been a proposal by, by Poland, um, which I, I, I believe um, may have been endorsed by uh, some of the other um, former um, East Bloc states that are now members of NATO to create humanitarian corridor uh, protected by peacekeepers. Is there a realistic expectation that that could happen? And I would put the same question to Curtis, too, about the possibility of a humanitarian corridor protected by peacekeepers um, being a, a concrete result coming out of the NATO summit. Thank you. Thank you for the question. I, I will uh, 
ask my U.S. colleague to, to answer as we are not around the table in NATO. But I will just say that the ask from Ukraine, whether to the United States as our strategic alliance partner and friend, or to other democratic nations, or to NATO, or to UN, or everyone at this point in the world, has been very consistent and the same. First, we need to stop the war. In order to stop the war, we need all the weapons everyone uh, ready to provide to us, as we are ready to defend our country until the victory. We need all the sanctions everyone are ready to uh, increase and deepen in order to isolate Russia and make them stop by sanctions. We need all the pressure that the international community can apply to Russia to stop again. Russia has shown that they only respond to strength and power. And we all have to show that uh, civilized democratic people can be strong. Clearly, if Ukrainians are stopping the tanks with the bare hands, as we saw in, in the videos, uh, there should be more options on the table and there should be more instruments that we, as the international community, can get out from the toolbox in order to stop Russia. Now, of course, the humanitarian corridors and getting the supplies into Mariupol, which has been besieged for 15 days, 15 days without food, water, uh, and being shelled and, uh, on, on an hourly basis. 80% of the city is destructed. Kharkiv, Chernihiv, other places. So we, of course, are fighting and we are not ready to surrender. But as our president said, even though he's uh, showing remarkable bravery and resolve to, 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 to continue and defend the country, we will negotiate. We will try to save every life possible. So whatever the international community can do to, to, to force, again, Russia to adhere to any of the humanitarian corridors, allow us to get the civilians out, allow us to get the supplies into the cities, we are ready to sit and negotiate around the table. But for this particular um, meetings in Europe, I will, I will ask my U.S. colleague Thank you, to Ambassador. comment. And I, I won't get ahead of anything that the president will say while he's uh, in uh, Brussels and in Poland. But uh, just to you know, reiterate what the ambassador said, uh, you know, the U.S. has been uh, very strong in our support, uh, both in terms of defense articles uh, for Ukraine, as well as in uh, humanitarian assistance. I think you've seen generosity from uh, the Congress uh, and huge support from the executive branch uh, as well. Um, we have also been trying to work uh, as best we can behind the scenes uh, to work with the UN and other international organizations uh, to facilitate uh, the passage of humanitarian supplies, to establish uh, humanitarian pauses, uh, implement uh, humanitarian corridors so that civilians who are fleeing can come out, supplies can flow in. It's obviously been difficult, and some cities are, are particularly in a, in a very uh, difficult situation right now. Uh, given uh, the um, you know the actions of Russian forces, I will say that I, I don't think that the the uh, establishment of humanitarian quarters by force is necessarily going to be successful because I think that that is simply going to lead to conflict between whichever uh, entity uh, would establish those humanitarian quarters and the Russians. I think we need to continue to work to see if we can uh, establish through negotiations humanitarian corridors, humanitarian pauses, so that we can get supplies in and people out. Are there other questions from the floor? Uh, Madam Ambassador, I have a question from Carol Castiel from Voice of America News. She would like to know, what do you think the West should do if Putin resorts to chemical weapons attack on Ukraine? 
Should Putin resort to using chlorine gas on Ukrainians that skirts the chemical weapons ban, what will or should the West do? Better yet, can we preempt his use of such heinous weapons? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, I've been asked many times what the West should do, and I think, you know, this question should be directed to West, first and foremost. <laughs> but uh, as a Ukrainian, uh, I can tell you that I think in 2014 and 2015, when Russia did exactly what they're doing now, but on a smaller scale, that is the moment when all the sanctions, strong sanctions, should have been implemented. That is the moment when everyone should have said no to business as usual with Russia. We are very pleased that we have now the strong response, that we have U.S. leading the effort, not only in supporting us, but also in sanctions and everything else. But we all together, as the democratic world, are catching up with Putin. He's driving his aggressive agenda, and we are responding. And I think it's time for us to think, what is it that we together are ready to do? in order to stop him. And clearly he shows to all of us that when he feels that we are not ready for decisive actions, that's when he advances. When he feels that there will be no repercussions for his action, that's when he does something more. We clearly have shown also in Ukraine that on the ground, he's not very successful. None of his initial objectives, whatever that was, have been achieved. No major cities, Kyiv, and our very motivated and very effective armed forces, which has been built from zero, you know, from scratch in 2013 when the uh, previous president and all government fled the country following the democratic uh, revolution of dignity, we found out our country without money, without institutions, without uh, army, without anything. And during the past eight years, we have built it from scratch. And we have reformed so many areas of our uh, go governance inside the country, and we see the results. Maybe this is something that we have to also apply on a global scale. If all these instruments and forums and international organizations that we're engaging now, if we are not able or they cannot respond uh, to the threats of the 21st century. Maybe we all together should, should think about how we can reform it in order to react properly and stop Putin. Yeah. Hi, Kim Dozier, CNN analyst. I wanted to ask um, if the shipments from the U.S. coming in are going to be enough for the next two weeks, the next month, and also on the MiG-29s, the we reporters get told by the Pentagon, et cetera, that part of the reason that the Biden White House doesn't want to send them in is it could be escalatory to send them via NATO. And the other part is because of the fleet of MiG-29s you have on the ground um, have had maintenance problems, and you haven't been able to fix those. That's why some of them aren't flying. So they don't want to send you um, more MiGs to have to try to keep in the sky. Is there anything to that? Thank you. Well, I hope you will understand that I will not respond to any specific questions on the weapons because we need to win this war and we don't need the enemy to uh, know and uh, all the details. So I'm, I'm, I'm a bit, uh, you know, shouldn't use upset word, but surprised that these discussions are in the press rather than being internally. But what I can tell you publicly is that we need 
all the support we can get with a special focus on anti-air and planes and everything we can get in order to close our sky, as we say. So while we are asking everyone who's ready to help us in it and understand that there is not a political or there is no readiness yet for some more uh, radical actions by our friends and partners, but we need all the weapons in order to do it ourselves. We never ask troops on the ground, actually. Our army is ready and capable and, and is very motivated to do it. But we need, as uh, uh, Sir Churchill said once, you know, give me the tools and I will do the job. Uh, our army needs all the tools to do this job. And we see now that the largest devastation that Ukraine is having is from the air. With not being able to fight effectively on the ground, not being able to advance, they resorted to pure terror. They just bombing all the cities, whether it's Kiev, Kharkiv, Western, Eastern Ukraine, from the air. And this is something that we have to address urgently. So any support there, and again, I will not go into detail, but our friends and partners all know what we want and why. Thank you. I believe we have a question, sir. Thank you, Joseph Bush, Alarabia English. Um, we've spoken a lot, obviously, <clears throat> about the West and their role, and its role in ending this war. Um, more or less, most of the Western countries are united um, in their stance. You have a handful of countries that are maybe haven't come out and condemned uh, Russia's invasion, be it China, Belarus, Iran, and a number of others. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the role you believe, Ambassador, uh, you believe China can play, and do you believe that this war can come to an end if China is pressured? And then, Curtis, if I may, I'll try. I might be able to guess your answer, but can you elaborate a little bit more as well on uh, how communications are um, going with, with Beijing following um, you know, the recent calls between U.S. and, and uh, officials led by President Biden? Thank you. Uh, a quick comment from me. First, uh, you mentioned Belarus. Uh, they are not uh, neutral. Our, our territory is being targeted from the territory of Belarus. Uh, the Russian troops that attack Ukraine from the north came from Belarus. So by any uh, rules or explanations, they are party to this conflict and they are not party on our side. So they are as responsible for this brutal aggression. Uh, not as responsible probably as Russians, but they are participating in it uh, already, although we really hope that, uh, you know, the Belarusian people will stop their military from uh, participating in this war. As to other countries, and you mentioned China, but others, we believe, again, I, I said democratic uh, West and democratic countries, but I think it's important for all UN members, especially for countries like China, who believe in UN policies and UN charter, uh, to also take part, you know, take sides. I think, you know, neutrality is no longer an option. It's not something that was quick and over in a day. Ukrainians are defending our homes. I think it's clear to everyone, even to skeptics, that regardless of where in Ukraine, whether it's east, west, south, north, whether Ukrainians speak Ukrainian or speak Russian, uh, like in, in, the, in the cities that have been attacked in the first days, you know, Kharkiv and Mariupol and others, that everyone are coming out, whether together with the armed forces or with bare hands, with only one ask to Russians, go home. We don't want you here. 
even in Kherson that has been under occupation on a daily basis, innocent people, and you also yesterday, how Russians shot at a peaceful demonstration on a daily basis. People go to the main square and say, go home. So I think there is no ambiguity there, as Ambassador said. It's very black and white. And I think it should be very important for those countries who are maybe a bit far from us, who didn't know us that well before, it, it, it should be very clear to these countries that this is what Ukrainians want, all of us. Not just our president, not just our um, members of parliament, not only our armed forces. All of us, all 40 million want one thing, for Russians to get out from our country, to stop firing at us, get out, and you know, leave us, leave us to do what we want to do in our country. And I think it should be very important for everyone, not only Western countries, for everyone who believe in borders, in sovereignty, in territorial integrity, and in UN rules that we can actually all live together somehow peacefully on this planet. So I believe it's time for everyone, and that's why we're counting on many countries, and we're counting on China also to, to take their role and, and play their important role in you know, encouraging that Russia stops. I mean, you've all seen President Biden spoke with President Xi, uh, the Secretary of State has spoken with his counterpart, National Security Advisor uh, spoke with his counterpart at well, as well, and all made clear, you know, that we find unacceptable uh, China's support for Russia's war in Ukraine. And I think, you know, coming back to kind of my uh, world of the UN, I think um, this is really a moment when China needs to think about uh, their relationship with other countries as well. China actually didn't vote no on the General Assembly resolution. They abstained. They abstained in the Security Council. They abstained elsewhere. And I think that they are trying to carve out a comfortable position for themselves, but we see in their words and deeds every day that they are clearly uh, supporting Russia's war in Ukraine. And I think a lot of countries that have uh, benefited from their bilateral relationship with China, uh, that work with China in many other areas, uh, need to uh, kind of question where China really stands on issues of sovereignty and territorial integrity, which are things that China often has highlighted in the UN, but we're not seeing them defend in the case of Ukraine. We're nearly at the end of our discussion today. May I ask if there are final questions from the floor? We do have a question, Jane, that we would like to pose to you about this dense accountability spider's web that you and Curtis and others have been describing. We know that there are some mechanisms, as you outlined, which hold states accountable. Mm -hmm. And there are mechanisms which hold individuals accountable, individuals like Putin. In your view, you are one of the country's world's great experts in this domain. Which of these mechanisms do you think is the most effective in this case with Russia's aggressive, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine? I think the Ukrainians have shown us the need for multiple mutually reinforcing approaches to accountability, and I commend them for you know, taking this issue to the International Court of Justice, for state responsibility to the European Court of Human Rights, as well as looking at international criminal mechanisms, um, because I think we need to have all of these. I don't think it's one or the other, either or. It needs to be a, a mutually reinforcing accountability strategy. And just to underscore a couple of things the ambassador said, which I think are really important, prevention is obviously critical. 
trying to prevent these horrific crimes and the harms before they happen and doing more and doing better. And I think if the web of accountability can be built more robustly going forward, there's a greater prospect for that. Um, and a second point she made, which I also want to really agree with, is the need to think creatively about new institutional structures. Um, you know, at the end of World War II, uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted, affirming human dignity and equality, and was the foundation for human rights instruments that have really been transformative. Um, and I think this is such a moment. And I think Ukraine is showing us not only what to fight against, but what to fight for. Uh, human dignity, human rights, uh, democracy, uh, and the need to build not only accountability for violations of fundamental norms, but to build structures that can prevent those violations and can help to reinforce um, the fundamental rules of international law on which peace and security depend. Thank you. Ambassador, maybe we invite you for final comments. Just want to thank everyone for and for, for the Institute of Peace, first and foremost, for bringing us together. Uh, every day is a challenge. Every day brings pain to Ukraine. But as our president says, every day brings us closer to our victory. And we believe it. We believe that, you know, because we are fighting this righteous war, because we are defending our home, because it's us who were, who were attacked, we have to win it. And uh, after we win it, and hopefully with global help, we will be able to do it faster. Uh, we all have to ensure that this will not happen again, which means also that we have to use all the tools possible in order to address the reasons why it happened. You know, everything that is wrong with Russia that led to this moment. So whatever Mr. Putin was talking about, all this demilitarization and other stuff, I think this is, it, it's clear to everyone that it's, if anyone has to go through it, it's, it's Russia. It's Russian Federation with all these uh, aggressive actions against Ukraine and aggressive intentions about, against everyone else. But right now, I think we all have to focus first on how to stop this war and how to stop the suffering and how to help Ukraine defend itself. And I would call on everyone to do everything possible to make it happen. Madam Ambassador, thank, thank you, you for being with us. It's an honor to have you. Bill, thank you. Curtis, we're delighted you're with us. Professor, thank you for educating us. You know, when the U.S. Institute of Peace was um, talking about this kind of event, we did a, a quick history of peace agreements and negotiated ends to wars where the issue of accountability was subsumed under the political imperative. And every time that happened, justice wasn't done, and there was more conflict later. And this is why we think it's so important that the issue of accountability be first and foremost up front in this conflict right now. And this is why we're grateful for all of you for being with us. Thank you very much. We look forward to welcoming everyone back to U.S. Institute of Peace. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.